Hello, it's Friday 14th of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part one of our annual travel wish list as Gary Bowerman and I set out 22 positive changes we'd like to see for travel and tourism in 2022. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So it's time for our third annual travel wishlist show, which this year we are calling 22 for 2022. Anna and I have put together a list of 20 ways in which travel and tourism could get better this year, and surely it really must get better. Plus, we've included two extra ideas submitted by our learned listeners, so that brings the total to 22. So, Hannah, before we dive in, I took a look back at part one of last year's wishlist show, 21 for 2021, and here are a few of our expectations and hopes back then. So, picked out five. One was no more target setting, which I think we've had in both years so far. One was to stop using 2019 as a benchmark for tourism planning. Another was to forget about the idea that international tourists will undergo a 14-day quarantine on arrival to a country for a holiday. Number four was uh, no more high quality tourist talk from governments. Well, that, we didn't really get very far with that one. And the, the another one I picked out was don't write off 2020 totally, try to find some positives to build on. So what do we make of those? Yeah, I, I think we might be repeating a few of those this time around again. <laughs> There's certainly some common themes, I think, that we're, we're still going to be talking about in 2022. But I like your last one. Don't don't write it off completely. And I think, you know, the, the same has to be said for last year as well. There's always some small positive amongst the gloom. Um, so we're going to put that full 2021 list on the Southeast Asia Travel Show website and link to it from the LinkedIn page and, and um, the show notes for this podcast as well. But let's get started then, shall we? We've got 22 uh, wishes to go through. As you said, we're going to split it up. So we're going to do half uh, this podcast. We'll cover another half in the next podcast. And we get started with the first one. And this was um, one of yours, right, Gary? What's that? This is, I would like to see, won't happen, but I would like to see a separation of border control from tourism management. Now, we've seen over the last two years that governments have had to take control of their borders and they have done so. They continue to do so in, a, in our region. And we've suffered from, from a lack of travel interaction throughout the region for the last two years. You know, you could say that's justified in terms of the, the variance that we've seen and the impact that COVID-19 has had on communities, health services and public across the, the region. But what does worry me from here is that governments have actually snatched total control over almost everything. So we have particular control over travel and tourism. Uh, we have, and that's aligned with border control. That's aligned with raising of revenues and that kind of thing. So it would be great if governments could really control their borders, look at ways they can reopen gradually throughout the year but leave the tourism management to the private sector, because quite frankly, they just do it much, much better. Absolutely. I agree with that one. So on to number two, and this is a, a familiar one from, a, I think this is a, made our list in 2020 and 2021. No target setting. <laughs> again, we say again, but it, I think it's still never more relevant than ever. Um, you know, forecasting tourism arrivals is just anybody's guess, isn't it? It's just looking into a crystal ball and trying to figure out um, where things might land, you know, give you an example. Um, here are some of the targets that have been set for 2022. 
already. Um, so we have um, Laos aiming for 1 million international tourists, whilst Indonesia is aiming for 1.8 to 3.6 million. Um, Vietnam, 5 million. Thailand, 10 to 18 million. Really, you know, it, it seems that people are just pulling out these these targets out from from kind of nowhere, nice round numbers and not really based on anything, right? Yeah, the target setting is, is something that really sort of became part of the, the vernacular over the last 10 years. As travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and across Asia Pacific started to grow pretty much year on year during, during the last decade, governments then started to set these targets to, to try and drive more tourism and, and you know, in theory, to, to bring more revenue, to bring more travelers, to build more jobs, you know, that kind of thing. The problem is with with target setting is, as you said there, Hannah, it, it's it's arbitrary. It's very very difficult right now to make any kind of forecast about what's going to happen through this year. And then what it does tend to do is, if the targets are set relatively high, it skews the market completely. So you do tend to see a lot of excessive discounting, which drives prices down, uh, which drives uh, consumer expectations of prices down, puts more pressure on the industry as well. Uh, and that, that tends to endure, particularly at the popular periods when you're going to have the most travel targeting. On the other side of that, you could say that sometimes target setting does work. If you look at the Maldives, for example, they set their target last year for around about 1.3 million visitors. It was their second year, it was their first full year, but their second year since reopening after COVID-19. And the whole industry pulled together and just about hit the target. They didn't set it too high. They made it manageable. And they actually gave the, the, the tourism industry and also visitors something and, and their markets and the tour operators, the travel agents, something to strive for. And it did work. And, you know, you could say that on that uh, situation, it, it was probably successful. But, you know, that, I think that was a meaningful target that was achievable, but it was quite, it, it was quite tough. Some of the targets that we're seeing here in Southeast Asia yeah, as you said, Hannah, they don't really seem to have any bearing on reality. And it really looks as though you're going back to that sort of 2018, 2019, where you're just picking volumes out of the air and just trying to drive traffic, which we know that travel and tourism has been badly damaged over the last two years. And, and making those kind of forecasts right now, I think you're just setting yourself up for, for a potential failure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we saw last year, didn't we, uh, the TAT constantly having to revise down the, the tourism forecasts are we going to see the same this year let's let's see let's hope not um but yes some very very ambitious target setting so the third one that we have um is from you again gary so you've put the word reopening disappears from our vocabulary that would be a nice one wouldn't it it would i mean i would say that both of us are guilty of using reopening probably more than we should over the last year but that that was wishful thinking you know we wanted to get activity back into the travel economies we wanted uh, governments to to be a little bit more realistic about how COVID-19 and people interact and how economies interact and how travel doesn't just have to be about taking holidays. You know, there are other reasons that people travel, which are important. You know, they do help to keep economies going. They, they help to keep businesses alive and they help to keep livelihoods working. And, you know, there needs to be something rather than these hard and fast rules that we've seen over the past two years. They really just trample down on, on vital economic activity. But by the same token, you know, we've, I think we've been expecting these sort of grand gestures, these reopening gestures that countries would start to open their borders again, um, whether that's in a phased way or whether that's perhaps the way that Singapore has been doing it, which I still think is probably the VTL system is probably going to be the way forward for this region, given, uh, you know, the, the sort of backward start that many countries are taking. But I think, and Dan Lin said this, when we interviewed Dan Lin just before Christmas, 
that perhaps, and particularly in Singapore, we may start to stop thinking about reopening because it will kind of happen organically. And he made a good point that the VTL um, system in the UK, for example, initially was flights in and out of London. But then gradually you started to see flights into and out of uh, destinations like Manchester. They didn't really get much coverage, but it was starting to see the sort of tangential uh, expansion of, of the VTL system. And that's what we would like to see in, in Asia. And you know, we don't really need to see headlines every time a government talks about reopening, because we know that sometimes when they do that, it doesn't actually happen. So it would be nice if we actually could start to see some moves. Malaysia's probably made one of those this week. You know, it's, it's enabling visitors who are fully vaccinated and who have tested positive for COVID-19, if they can prove that, will be able to enter the country still some details to, to be ironed out on that. But this is the kind of thing that I think we will start to see. Uh, it won't be just a big grand gesture. It will be very, very phased and gradual ways of allowing different kinds of travellers into countries. Yeah, I like that. I think you're right. Hopefully, uh, like you and, and Dan Lynn are saying, is, this is going to be more organic. It's not going to be the big bang reopening. It's going to be in a you know, a more sustainable way, isn't it? Because, of course, you do this big bang reopening and, and then you have to close and then that makes the headlines too. You know, it, we need a calibrated, I'll borrow from Singapore, a calibrated approach to this all. So on to number four then, um, and this was one of my picks, which is outbound travel to start back in a meaningful way. As we've said, Gary, you know, many times in the podcast last year, a lot of the focus in Southeast Asia on reopening, there we go, I've said it already, has been about reopening for inbound travel, not necessarily for outbound travel. Um, but yet there has still been Southeast Asian travelers who have been traveling outbound. You know, Indonesian outbound market has continued. Philippines um, has been able to travel outbound throughout the whole year. Malaysia changed their regulations and Malaysian travelers uh, were also allowed to travel outbound. So there is this growing um, volume of outbound travellers, still small, of course, compared to pre-pandemic, but it is starting to, you know, pick up. But of course, we've, we've got quarantines to contend with. So my my hope really is, you know, outbound travel really starts to pick up and that governments also recognise that and, and that, you know, they they take these steps that travel is both ways. It's not only inbound, it's not only for that interest, but you know, they, they can support the outbound tourism industry as well by permitting that to go ahead. Yeah, you make a good point there, particularly here in Southeast Asia, where the focus has been on, on inbound travel. Uh, Singapore accepted that. But I think it was quite interesting when we interviewed Dr. Jeon Choi from South Korea just after summer last year. And South Korea had really focused on outbound travel. You know, South Koreans, they'd removed the, the quarantine requirement upon returning to South Korea. Although South Korea was was largely closed for inbound travel. You had to do a 14, you still have to do a 14, I think it's a 10 or a 14 day quarantine when you arrive in the country. Koreans were exempted from that. So they were traveling into Europe, uh, particularly into European destinations, couldn't really travel into Southeast Asia at the time. And it was a real contrast, wasn't there, at that point where most of the countries in, in our region were still closed really, but they were looking to bring back inbound travelers whereas South Koreans were, were looking to take more holidays. And, it, you know, South Korea, I'd say last summer was probably the most interesting outbound market from Asia Pacific. And I would like to think that, as you said there, Hannah, come the European summer this year, I think we'll see a lot more outbound travel from Southeast Asia. And you know, that will be positive for the industry, It'll be pos positive for everybody. Of course, that everything at the moment is Omicron dependent. But, you know, that would be, I think, a way that we can actually start to see 
economic activity coming back in a more normalized way. It won't be normal, but, but certainly different to the past two years. Absolutely. So next hope, number five, that the China market returns. Now, Gary, I know that you follow the China market much more closely than I do. What's your take on that? Well, it's everybody's hope. I mean, the reason that it's in in this list is because all countries in the region desperately need the Chinese market back. You know, the Chinese travel ecosystem in Southeast Asia is very, very strong. It's not just about the travelers. It's about the airlines. It's about the investors. You know, so many things about the Chinese outbound market changed over the last 10 years, expanded considerably and had a dramatic impact on, on the tourism economies throughout our region. So everybody needs it back. You, if you've noticed that countries when they are reopening, again, I've used that word, Hannah, when they're reopening, they set out their lists of countries that are eligible for travelers to come into Southeast Asia. You know, China's always on that list. There's always a hope that the Chinese outbound market will return. Currently, it, it's, it's not looking great, is it? You know, it's, it's midwinter in China right now. It's cold. There are outbreaks in cities such as Tianjin uh, and Yang. Uh, Xi'an, these have been you know, closed down very, very carefully, but it does seem that Omicron is in China and the, there is huge concerns about the potential impact on the healthcare systems across the country. It's a huge country, of course, has 1.4 billion people. China is about to host the, the Winter Olympic Games, so nothing is going to happen for the next few months. But it, I think like everything in the region is very Omicron dependent. It's very, very dependent on how the Chinese government wants to manage its economy for the rest of the year. It's kind of sealed off from the rest of the world at the moment. And the Chinese economy does need to be more internationalized. But also there are some political issues this year. President Xi Jinping is, is looking to secure a third term, and that will probably happen in November this year. And the narrative for that third term is likely to be around the fact that the country has been kept safe from uh, COVID-19 thus far, if that can continue. So will the Chinese market return in the near future? I, I really don't think so. I really don't see it. Um, some analysts are saying perhaps spring next year, and we'd like to think it will be before that. But at the moment, I, I think it's difficult to forecast. China is always very, very difficult to second guess. Um, but I don't think we should be planning our, our marketing campaigns on it right now. Yeah, I think you're right, unfortunately. So on to number six, and this was actually one of our listener um, suggestion. So this comes from Timothy O'Neill Dunn, who's principal at T2 Impact in Washington State, US. And he'd said, Hannah, here's one thing I would love to see the whole region adopt, a community standard for health. So he said this would comprise the following items. One, testing on arrival paid for by the government and reimbursed from the air ticket. Two, mandatory and graduated restrictions by gauge of state in departing country. Three, full tracing and notifications to your phone says like Singapore, hat tip to Singapore. Four, daily case public data for the latest information on each disease, like Hong Kong does. And five, compliance exception penalties clearly laid out, enforcement on the airlines or the transportation providers. And he says if this is followed, then each country could be assessed as to their adherence to the standard and consumers can make informed decisions. I mean, putting it like that, it makes it sound simple, right, Gary? (laughs) <laughs> well, it does sound, it, it sounds so logical, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, everything that's set out a five-point scheme, we could probably have done that five, um, two years ago, and it could have happened. I think Timothy is absolutely correct. You know, to do these kinds of uh, pan-regional schemes are going to need you know, not too many overarching points. They just need to be very, very simple parameters. And I think he set those out very, very clearly. Will it happen is, is an entirely different thing. I think the problem we've seen 
over the last two years is that governments have just completely diverged. And and also, I think that some governments see this as an opportunity for them to actually uh, get, get a head start on some of their other competitive countries. And so the regional cooperation element has, has been dismissed, I think. It would make absolute sense. It would make travel and tourism so much more uh, logical. It would make it safer and it would make it more easy to manage, I think. But is it going to happen? I don't know. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, I think the, the jury is out on that. Like you said, it, it's completely logical. It makes sense. Can it be adapted in ASEAN? Hmm, that's another question. And that leads us on quite nicely um, to number seven, which is a hope that intra-ASEAN travel could happen without quarantine. And again, it's just down to this. Can ASEAN cooperate with each other? Can they make this work? And, you know, we've been talking about an ASEAN travel corridor for what, one and a half years now, I think. Um, and it, it's still not come off. Um, you know, as, as we keep saying, that there, there have been some big failings um, in ASEAN, Myanmar amongst those um, last year. Uh, to me, it, uh, I really, I, I have my doubts. I mean, I know that the, uh, the ATF is meeting this week in Cambodia. Normally there's a, a meeting of the tourism ministers as well. So I'm sure we're going to hear news about ASEAN travel corridors again about how it would make sense to have you know some kind of pan-ASEAN quarantine-free travel I just don't think it's very likely do you? Not right now I think the timing is a little bit awkward I think there's a huge degree of uncertainty about what Omicron is going to bring to the region you know if we're looking at what's happening in Europe we're looking at what's happening in the United States we're looking at what's happening in Australia we're looking at what's happening in India now, this is a very, very transmissible disease. It, it infects huge numbers of people very, very quickly, regardless of the uh, element of whether it increases hospitalizations and deaths or not. You know, it is going to cause a lot of people to be ill, to be sick, and therefore possibly to be off work. So it's going to have an economic impact. And I think governments are going to be very, very aware of that. And it's no question that most governments in our region were really rattled by Delta last, what was that, July, August, you know, that had a huge impact, particularly in the countries that had managed to hold COVID-19 at bay for, for much of the, the previous year. Um, so in terms of integral agreements, no, I don't see much happening. I think, again, and I know I keep saying this, I sound as I'm very, very pro-Singapore, but I do think Singapore will take the lead on this. You know, Singapore had started to open up VTLs with different uh, Southeast Asian countries. Some of those are on hold right now for, for obvious reasons. But it's going to take something like that to happen. Otherwise, I do think we'll just see a lot more bilateral agreements. Malaysia and Indonesia said that they would be looking to do a vaccinated travel lane. We've got no start date for that right now. We don't even know if it will happen. Uh, other countries like Thailand and Vietnam, they may do that. Um, but a whole region-wide one, you just can see in the minds of governments that they would perceive the risks uh, probably for the foreseeable future. Uh, stronger than the potential reward. So personally, I don't think it will happen. I think, but I agree with you. I think there will be talk about it. Yeah. So number eight, and this is one of your picks. So Gary, you'd put a regional recognition that quarantines are unworkable. And I think we said something very similar last year, didn't we? Yeah, we haven't. But the problem is with quarantines is you know, we were moving towards a situation by about November where it looked like quarantines were becoming a thing of the past. Governments were, were either um, bringing them right down towards three or four days, which again, you know, we've said this before, what's the point of a three-day quarantine? That actually has no scientific basis anyway. Um, but we were looking more towards quarantine-free travel into, into Thailand, for example, Singapore as well. 
Um, but then obviously, you know, the, the advent of, of Omicron really changed government's minds and they started ratcheting them back up to get, again to you know, 10 days, 14 days. Um, quarantines are a very, very blunt tool and they, they're, they're ineffective if the virus, is, if the variant itself is in society. You know, governments do have this attitude that quarantines help to slow down the spread of Omicron. But, you know, slowing it down through quarantines doesn't really seem to be the point. You need to actually... Uh, slow it down within the community. So it, it's, it just seems to me that quarantines are a very blunt tool that have little effect. And we've learned that over the past two years. Most countries in Europe don't have them anymore. It's a, it's a very test-based um, scenario for travel. Uh, you know, testing is, it has its own flaws, um, but it does seem to work fairly well. There's no perfect system, is there? This is a dangerous virus. We know that COVID-19 is here to stay or more variants of it. But I don't think that quarantines are the answer, do you? No, and it, it's the same. You know, last year, do you remember with Delta, um, we saw lots of countries slap on really hugely long uh, quarantine periods. So Singapore is the perfect example, right? They ex- extended their, their stay-home notices to 21 days, um, which they later admitted, oh, actually, no, we can reduce it back down to 14 days because we, we know that that's fine. Um and even for the VTLs, although, uh, again, back in Singapore, although um, there have been Omicron cases coming in with the VTLs, the government have said through their testing, and these travelers are now having to do daily testing for the first seven days, they're actually managing to catch most of those cases that way. Um, it's like you say, I, I think, you know, 2022, it has to be more about testing rather than just bluntly using quarantines. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think quarantines are being used as a safety net by governments, that it's something to fall back on. I would agree with you there that, you know, the Singapore system has been able to to catch those cases. But, you know, that does rely on the scale. At the moment, the scale of travelers into Singapore, well, before Omicron, the scale of travelers into Singapore, although it was increasing, it was still very, very manageable by by Chinese terms. I know that's going to get much more difficult as as more visitors arrive, testing becomes much more difficult, more people are in the same place at once, the potential for transmission in airports is much, much higher. So we're not at a perfect system. Um, I think it means that, you know, the gradual recovery of air travel will continue to be gradual, however however we look at it. Yeah, it, this is this is not going to be a, a sudden increase, is it? it? It's just going to be very, very gradual over time, probably so gradual that we haven't really noticed till suddenly we say, oh, we're no longer minus 99% down year on year versus <laughs> 2019. <laughs> well, let's hope so. Let, let's hope we get to that point, Anna. That would be great. So we're, we're moving through these quite quickly and we come to number nine. And this is, this is one of yours, Hannah. I like this one. Recognition of the value that backpacker tourism brings. And that brings to mind, doesn't it, a comment earlier in the year by, by uh, sorry, a comment last year by somebody influential in Indonesia. You're absolutely right, Gary. Um, so we had a very senior Indonesian minister who suddenly kind of announced um, Indonesia wasn't going to be looking for backpackers anymore. I mean, this was quickly walked back, I think, within that week. And, you know, they backtracked on it and said, oh, no, 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 backpackers are going to be welcome to Indonesia still. Um, but I think that that really just showcases that governments are are very easy to dismiss backpacker tourism. And we've seen last year, everybody is after the high value tourist, aren't they? They they see, you know, if it's a game of numbers and they want to try and get back the tourism revenue that that they have, but with um, 
fewer tourists, then the logic is to go for those high value tourists. But backpacker tourism, you know, they stay in the country for longer periods. They tend to engage more with community based tourism as well. They're not really fly in, fly out travelers. And it's that kind of engagement, that kind of exchange of ideas, um, I think that, that makes backpacker tourism really valuable. You know, Stuart McDonald at Travelfish hopefully is listening to this and uh, furiously nodding his head because he is certainly a, a big backer of uh, backpack tourism, isn't he, Gary? Yeah, he is. And actually, a couple of interesting things I picked up on the Southeast Asia Backpacker Forum uh, this week. Uh, we interviewed Nikki Scott, if you remember, the founder of Southeast Asia Backpacker. Uh, one of our first shows when we, when we launched the Southeast Asia Travel Show a couple of years ago. On her forum this week, I noticed that there are backpackers out there traveling. You know, travel, backpackers are really improvisational, very imaginative. Uh, they're, they're great at finding ways to travel. Uh, and so there were reports there from backpackers that are currently traveling in Thailand and are currently traveling in Sri Lanka. Uh, actually, the three reports that I saw were all saying that some of the hostels are quite busy, uh, bookings are doing quite well, and that there are actually backpackers traveling right now, which I think is quite interesting. We did think that it might be one of the segments that would be most affected by the fact that airfares are quite high right now. But it seems not. It seems people are still finding ways to backpack. And, you know, let's, let's hope that continues. Because I really do think the backpackers might actually lead this recovery. Because as we said, they're, they're intrepid, they're adventurous, they like to get out there and travel. Many of them will have been waiting two years to be able to, to go out and do that. Um, so, yeah, we, we could see a, a surge of backpacker travel into Southeast Asia this year. Perhaps not to Bali, but, you know, that would be a governmental thing. <laughs> Absolutely. So my pick for number 10 is that digital transformation gets serious for tourism SMEs this year. And again, this is one of these buzzwords, isn't it? Everybody wants to be digitally transformed. Uh, they want to become more tech savvy. And Typically, for a lot of SMEs, I think, in Southeast Asia, that just means that they have a website and maybe they um, are on social media. Maybe they've got an Instagram account, they've got a Facebook account. But we've seen, you know, consumer trends have changed over 2020, 2021. They're a lot more sophisticated now. They're a lot more tech savvy and they expect their tourism providers to be the same. So if you are not updating your website, you're not updating your social media, maybe you're not engaging with even digital ads you're going to be left behind in the competition. You know, SMEs really need to up their game now. The, the time is now before the, the big hopeful rush that comes. Totally agree with that. Uh, I did a, a webinar presentation earlier this week for Sesta China in, in Madrid. And one of the questions I got asked was, you know, how important is digital transformation? This was mostly related to Chinese travelers, but how important is digital transformation? And I said, well, if you look at it from the consumer side, Consumers haven't really transformed digitally in the past two years as much as the media likes to say. This was all happening before. You know, we'd become this super app generation before the pandemic. Okay, it's been accelerated a little bit through the pandemic. Some of those consumer trends have changed a little bit, and we've all become much more used to using our smartphones to purchase almost everything, and whether that's products or services. That won't that will continue in future. But I said, what I think we've 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 come to the point now is that we actually have a kind of super app lifestyle. And consumers are very, very indulged. You know, it's so easy to do anything now uh, as a consumer from your, your smartphone. You expect it to arrive very, very quickly. You expect services to happen very, very quickly. You expect a response very, very quickly if something goes wrong. And I think that's where SMEs are going to have to look at in future is not just how they can market and sell their own products, but how they can respond very, very quickly digitally should something go wrong or if there is a query. 
or if somebody wants an add-on to their package, or if they want something that is not normally what the what the travel provider would would, would do. You know, I think we're all becoming more discerning. We all have higher expectations of travel. So. Yeah, it, it, I think it's a, it's a mindset transformation as much as it's a digital transformation. But you're absolutely right. It's very, very mobile-led. And this is something that the industry is going to have to accept that, you know, real change is happening and, and there's no going back, I don't think. Yeah, that's a great point. So that brings us to our last hope for this podcast, which is that we have to come to terms with the fact that the pandemic has changed many things, some temporarily, others possibly permanently. Gary, that was yours. It has, hasn't it? I mean, two years of the pandemic have changed the way we think pretty much every day. It, it, it's changed our own perceptions of human vulnerability, of our human health and well-being. In Asia, I think this is quite different to, to the West. In Asia in general, I don't like to generalize too much, but there is fear of COVID-19. There has been from the beginning and there still is. We're very, very aware of trying to prevent catching the disease. You know, that's going to spill over into travel. I do think people will want to travel when they're able to do so again. I don't think that the pandemic is going to stymie that, but I think it's going to change patterns of travel. It's going to change demand, I think, in terms of the number of trips that people can take in terms of their financial ability to do so and whether they'll be wary of traveling long distances and staying for longer. This is something we don't yet know. But in terms of everything, I just think the mindset of peoples has changed, the mindset of governments has changed. We've seen many travel providers have completely changed the way they do business. So none of this is going back. I think we can look at this positively. You know, you'll always hear the, the statement that this is an opportunity. It, it's not necessary that everything is lost. And there is some truth in that, I think. We will see a huge degree of in, innovation and entrepreneurialism. And um, we will start to see, as we've seen with some of the airlines, you know, uh, AirAsia has moved into a completely different sphere than what it did before. Some of that is necessity, but some of that is also trying to predict what's going to happen next in terms of consumer and travel behavior. So there is going to be huge change. It's not going back to 2019. And, you know, that's what leads back a little bit to what we were saying earlier, is if governments are still thinking in this volume terms of the way we thought about travel in 2019, I think they're going to get caught out because consumer mindsets have changed. We're more aware of things like uh, sustainability. We're more aware of the damage, not just travel, but everything does to the environment these days. Um, and I think these are important factors. You know, it's, it's a whole coming together of different impacts of COVID-19. That, that, that's my view. What do you think, Hans? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you're absolutely right. That, you know, in, in terms of everybody's mindset has changed. And, you know, if you're thinking in terms of uh, being a tourism business, then it is really important when you, you, you're kind of thinking out your 2022 strategy now to not be thinking back necessarily to 2018. I mean, maybe maybe using 2018, 2019 as a kind of guiding reference. This is what I did. But it it is not replicating those strategies anymore. It's taking those strategies, it's pivoting them, it's, it's finding the 2022 spin on them that's going to work. But certainly things are not going to go back to where they were. And like you said, there can be positives in that, certainly, you know, in terms of sustainability. I mean, also possibly some negatives too. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, and also if we think ourselves, Hannah, back to, to 2020, if, if we look back at some of the webinars and, and some of the meetings that we were involved with during that time, you know, a lot of the focus was on getting tourism back on, on I wouldn't say going back to 2019 numbers, but trying to get back some of the patterns of travel that we had before. And I think over last year, 2021 especially, 
we, we saw the debate change. We saw people within the industry really thinking differently and actually confronting, you know, there are real challenges ahead of us. Some of those are going to be insurmountable. Some of those we can, we can bypass. And some of those are going to take probably tech-driven um, solutions to, to come up with new ways of thinking and mirror the way that consumers themselves are going to change. You know, everything is up in the air right now, but I, I have actually been I think, inspired a little bit by the way people are actually trying to think of new solutions. You know, it, it's kind of, we're kind of at the point where nothing is wrong right now. You can try things and they won't work, but it doesn't necessarily mean they were wrong. Um, they were probably just wrong right now. In a year's time, you know, they may be proved that, that you were ahead of, ahead of the game. I think we're in that kind of scenario right now. Yeah, I like that mentality. That's a good way to uh, bring us to the end of this podcast, part one of our 22 for 2022 travel wishlist show. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on what we discussed or anything we might have missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And if you have a hope for 2022, let us know. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. Also on our website is a short article breaking down the Southeast Asia Travel Show's 2021 listener stats. We actually produced 67 episodes last year, including 35 interviews, and we reach listeners in 94 countries. Pat on the back for you and me there, Hannah. Yeah, definitely. Take a quick read if you have time. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And if you do tune in to us via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, which together actually account for 60% of our total listeners, please give us a quick rating and a review as that helps other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. But Gary will be back on Tuesday in conversation with Lombok-based travel filmmaker Josh Edwards. And we'll both return next Friday with part two of our 22 for 2022 travel wishlist show. We look forward to seeing you then.